Hello and welcome back to Cover to Cover. In a previous episode, I read an edited, trimmed-down version of the story Spring and Fialta by Vladimir Nabokov. And today I'd like to say a few words about Nabokov's artistry in this wonderful story. Now, Nabokov's style is typically lush and luxuriant, and Spring and Fialta is no exception. If you don't know the story, please do listen to it. And if you have the chance, read the full version of the story with all its extraordinarily rich vocabulary and images and parentheses and complex subsidiary clauses. Spring and Fialta is a story laden with colour, with smell, sights, description and with symbols. The British writer George Orwell once famously drew up a list of rules for good writing, and one of those rules was about concision. He wrote, If it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. But this is not a rule that the narrator of this story, Victor, would ever wish to comply with. For him, quite the reverse. Words, images, adjectives, adverbs, memories, it's all heaped up in a glittering and colourful stack. The story is set in Fialta, an imaginary seaside resort, perhaps somewhere in the Crimea. And the narrator is a man called Victor, who meets there by chance the woman with whom he has been having an on-off affair for 15 years. Like Nabokov himself, Victor, the character, is a man of tremendous sensory awareness. He sees and he smells things vividly, and he is also, frankly, a man in love with the sound and shape of his own sentences. He's wordy, he's verbose, and indeed his verbal and observational facility end up trapping him in what is not significant. To quote a classic English expression, Victor cannot see the wood for the trees. Victor is a rich Russian who gallivants around Europe doing business here and there. When he gets home to Russia, the comforts of home life await him. There are servants to look after the house. His wife, Eleanor, does not argue with him or remonstrate with him. Indeed, she does not seem to figure at all in his emotional life. Victor and Eleanor have two daughters and they have a dog, a Doberman Pinscher, the kind of breed to be found in an affluent Russian household in the early 20th century. Naturally, the dog is included 
in the family portraits that a suitably fashionable society photographer takes of them from time to time. Arriving in Fialta alone, having left his wife and daughters at home, Victor's senses are on edge. Right from the opening sentences, we are given clues and symbols that help establish the mood and the themes. Plane trees with black and white splotches, stately but drab in the rain. Dry sponges in the window of the pharmacy, symbolising Victor's unquenched thirst for love. Railings which separate. Gravel which makes an uncomfortable grating noise as you walk over it. Bits of orange peel or tin foil on the sidewalk, shining brightly in the middle of the cobbled street. Bright things that have been discarded and trodden underfoot as if of no value, a metaphor for Victor's relationship with Nina. Other key symbols in the story are the distant sea, too sluggish to break into foam, a metaphor for the love that remains out of reach, a metaphor too for the way Victor is intimidated by emotional intimacy. Then there are the half-built collapsing houses, some of them filled with litter, which to me suggest the inability of the two protagonists to build any kind of durable relationship to go beyond sex. At the end of the story, there is the glass containing a bright crimson drink, the colour of blood, which throws an ominous reflection on the tablecloth in the hotel where Nina, Victor, Ferdinand and Segur have lunch before the car accident. And of course, there is the travelling circus. Victor is a complacent and conservative man with a rich verbal and mental life. Alas, he observes so much that he misses the essential. He surfs on wave after wave of perceptual promiscuity, but he keeps missing the essential. Back to that first paragraph. It's raining and Mount St. George is far away. We have a sense of distant peaks, a sense of things remote and unattainable, just as a stable relationship with Nina is unattainable, just as the real Nina remains remote and unknown. The narrator adds that there is a faint tang of burning in the air. What is burning? Leaves, perhaps? Leaves that have been raked up in a garden? Newspapers? Old letters? Or is it the connection between the two on-off lovers whose meetings are not valued at their proper measure but are casually discarded, 
tossed into a fire where they smolder in the ashes. In my mind, I see flames licking around the edges of an old photograph, maybe a photograph of a woman in a long skirt entering a shop. Another key symbol is the circus. What does the word circus conjure up for you, listener? For me, well, when I was a kid, my dad would take us to see the circus in Wellington, my hometown, and for me it was an exotic experience. There were trapeze artists. There were animals padding around the sand-filled circular space in the middle, a ringmaster dressed in an exotic costume, perhaps wearing a top hat. And we kids would perch goggle-eyed on makeshift seating under the big tent, fascinated. But that is a child's memory. When I was an adult living in France, I often saw circus posters in small towns on the perimeter of Paris, but they always looked a little cheap, even a bit ridiculous. And that is very much the case here. Victor notices several circus advertisements as he strolls around Fialta, but they're wet because it's raining all the time and the, the advertisements are peeling off their backboards. One of these ads, and this quote will give you a feeling for Victor's juiced-up prose. One of them features a feathered Indian on a rearing horse in the act of lassoing a boldly endemic zebra, while some thoroughly fooled elephant sat brooding upon their star-spangled thrones. This is lively, but it's also derisive. An American Indian wearing a feather headdress on a bucking bronco who's trying to lasso a zebra. The narrator describes the zebra as boldly endemic, but this is sarcastic. Obviously, zebras are not found in the lands of the North American Indians. Then there are the thoroughly fooled elephants seated on star-spangled thrones. The circus becomes, to my mind, something a little ridiculous, grotesque, confused. And Victor indeed notices that somebody has defaced one of the posters by adding a moustache to the face of the woman riding a horse. For the entire 15 years of their off-on relationship, Victor is unable to comprehend that he is in love with Nina. For him, she is an occasional excitement like a circus, but which you do not take seriously. You have a good time, the horses buck, you throw out your lasso and you catch an ankle, a neck, a kiss a thigh, 
And then you go back out the flap of the big tent and re-enter the wholesomeness of normal life. When Victor first meets Nina, they're both 17 years old. It's the middle of winter. They are outside with a group of young partygoers. They advance on the path of life, we might say, along a narrow furrow between snowbanks. Victor hears the crunch, 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 which is the only comment, he says, that a taciturn winter night makes upon humans. But then his evening and his the silence in the snow is suddenly and splendidly interrupted and illuminated when he and Nina kiss. Victor is dazzled by Nina's slender figure, by her candor, by what he later describes as her amatory comprehension, by which he seems to mean an instinctive understanding of male desire and a direct, generous approach to sex without the least concern for notions of fidelity. There follow 15 years of occasional meetings, during which time they both get married to other people. 15 years characterized for Victor initially by sensual enjoyment and then slowly, gradually by a growing apprehension. For a long time, Nina is a gorgeous fruit for Victor to feast on when the opportunity arises. But then starting from the time when he sees her at the railway station in Moscow and learns with what he characterizes as a ridiculous pang that she is about to be married, he slowly starts to wake up to his emotions and begins to question the nature of his feelings for her. He finds himself comparing a possible life with Nina to his normal, solid, respectable life, the life in which wearing a signet ring and holding a slender cane, he sits for official family portraits with his wife, his daughters and the family hound. Victor is troubled by the fact that Nina has had and continues to have many sexual partners. This leads him to reject as absurd the idea that they could be a couple, and yet the feelings remain. But who is Nina? A woman the same age as Victor, from the same social class as Victor, who discovered early in life her attractiveness to men. She is sufficiently photogenic and high-profile to appear in the pages of fashion magazines, and apparently she cares not a whit for conventional morality or for the conventional path towards marriage, children and family. Yes, she does get engaged to a young guardsman whom she later sloughs off, 
and she does marry Ferdinand. But from what little we see of her and hear of her, because she is never given the chance to express an opinion, she seems to be attracted to the bohemian artistic life that Ferdinand leads. She plays the role of a muse to Ferdinand, all of which hints at artistic and perhaps literary ambitions of her own. She attends parties all over Europe, she travels incessantly, she has numerous affairs, she seems to be keen to travel, keen to talk books and art and literature, keen to express her sexuality, and yet somehow lost as though unable to locate her own core desires. What feelings does she have for Victor? Well, the story is told from the man's point of view, so we never learn what Nina's feelings are. Nor do we learn what the reasons are for her promiscuity. She certainly feels something for Victor, because on a couple of occasions when they meet, she says with genuine pleasure, Well, of all people! But she makes no declaration to Victor. Like him, she limits herself to the physical plane and to occasional meetings. Of course, she knows that Victor is married, as she is herself. And of course, again, the options available to her as a woman in the early 20th century are much more constricted than the options available to a man. But perhaps she knows that whatever faults Ferdinand may have, and let's not forget that we readers see Ferdinand entirely through the prism of Victor's intense jealousy. There is absolutely no objectivity. Perhaps Nina knows that Victor can never offer her the intellectual or artistic satisfaction or indeed the sexual freedom that she can count on in her life with Ferdinand. At one point in the story, Nina enters a shop in Fialta to look at leather purses. She wants one in a particular colour. Well, the shopkeeper does manage to find a purse in fawn, as she had requested, but then she changes her mind and goes out of the shop without buying anything. In a regretful tone, she says, Au fond, I wanted a comb. Now that au fond resonates for me. It, if we were to translate it literally in English, it would be deep down. But in this context, it would be more naturally expressed as really, as in what I really wanted was a comb. The point here for me is that neither of the main characters is clear about what they really want deep down.
sensual, saying little, a compulsive traveller, Nina remains a mystery, never committing to anything. Like Victor, she and her husband Ferdinand drift across Europe, onto beaches on the French Riviera, into hotels, into train stations, to parties in Berlin or Paris, to the Pyrenees. And she and Victor occasionally drift into each other's arms. And Victor begins to grow apprehensive because, in his words, something lovely, delicate and unrepeatable is being wasted. As he sees it, he is somehow accepting Nina's life, the lies, the futility, the gibberish of that life. Now, we might well ask, by what right does Victor label Nina's life as being full of lies and gibberish, as being futile? We might ask him the same question. How futile is your life, Victor? You're married to a woman you do not love. You've been carrying on an affair for 15 years with a woman that you pine after, but to whom you have never had the courage to express your true feelings. You have never been able to confront what you want deep down. So who's talking about lies here? Apart from being a writer, Nabokov was a lepidopterist. In other words, he was an expert on butterflies, a collector of butterflies. Spring and Fialta is a story about a hopeless romance and a fatal lack of courage. And to me, the genius of this story is that even as Nina disappears in the car crash, the story skewers its narrator, Victor, on a pin, like a butterfly. Butterflies are a blaze of looping colour, gorgeous wing patterns, astonishing aerial display. Just like a butterfly, Victor is skewered in this story. He is pinned to the board. Ladies and gentlemen, please take a look at this specimen. A selfish, dilettante, superficial, judgmental, fatally lacking in courage. But look at his brilliant observations, his verbal pyrotechnics, his rich images and symbols. But as I say, fatally lacking in courage, like the ocean, Victor is too sluggish to break into foam. As for Nina, perhaps all she really wanted was a comb. Mm-hmm. 